So we've been in 1 Corinthians 10 for about four weeks. We concluded with verse 12 last week. So um, I am not going to back up and read verses 1 through 11. Um, I'm going to very briefly recap right after I pray here. And uh, then we'll jump into this. Father, thank you so much for this group that has shown up here in person. For those who are joining us now uh, online and those who will tune in later or log in later, however we want to say that. I want to pray, Father, that you'll open your word to us, that our hearts will be available to you so that uh, we don't just look at this with our head, but we receive it with our heart and allow you to change our lives as the result. You've promised that your word will never return to you empty, but it will always accomplish what you intend. So I pray our hearts will uh, be open and we will be available to you in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's take a look at this. Uh, honestly, what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna read these two verses because they're, they're almost like their own thing, right? And this is something I memorized a, a ways back. And uh, then we'll see how far beyond that we get. Um, my plan is to do verse 13 and then verses 14 through 22. And then uh, we'll jump into verses 23 through hopefully the end of the chapter the next time uh, we, are, we join each other. All right. So 1 Corinthians 10, 12 from the English Standard Version. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. So don't be presumptuous. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, to humans. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Okay, so um, this is what William Barclay says in response to largely verse 13, the history of Israel, and remember, I'm sorry, I said I was gonna do a recap. Let me just briefly say this. So the Apostle Paul has been talking about eating meat sacrificed to idols. So this whole chapter, uh, has been addressing um, the trial that they were going through, the tests that they were going through in their culture of being tempted to identify with their former idolatrous selves or being unconcerned about the feelings of other people. So we have issues today where people are being offended right and left over various in various ways over various subjects and i'm not going to take that lightly the apostle paul didn't take it lightly um, what we need to do is we need to stand for christ and we need to speak the truth in love let the chips fall where they may if my personality is causing an offense or if i've done something that has uh, been inconsiderate then i can apologize but i don't have to um, compromise my faith in order to uh, be considerate of someone else. So just bear that in mind. Um, you're talking about a city that was steeped in idolatry and all of these Christians had come out of idolatry. There weren't that many Jews in Corinth. There were some um, that had followed Christ, but there were a lot of Gentiles and they had formerly worshiped these idols um, they had gotten saved, and now they were convinced that they had freedom in Christ, which is good, you do. 
but don't let your freedom be a cause for stumbling for someone else. And I've gone into all sorts of detail about that in previous uh, lessons. I'll let you look back uh, online, those of you that are online, those of you that are here, you can go online and look at those previous lessons, or you can remember uh, what you already learned here, okay? Um, so now, in this chapter, we've had several different incidents that have been presented to us out of the history of Israel. I've said to you, we could call Israelite history in the Old Testament, holy history. That's not my designation. Uh, that's a theological designation. Uh, in fact, that I was introduced to in either college or seminary. The German word for it is the Heilsgeschichte, the holy history, right? And the Apostle Paul has already said very clearly, verse 11, these things happened to them as an example. So they didn't just happen, it's just history. If you're looking at the Bible and it's just history, you're really missing the point, okay? These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. That's why you should read the Old Testament because it's an example, it's a type. It's going to present a paradigm to you now, William Barclay, talking about the holy history, the history of Israel, says, the history of Israel shows that people who enjoyed the greatest privileges of God were far from being safe from temptation. Special privilege, Paul reminds the Corinthians, is absolutely no guarantee of security. Paul concludes this section by saying three things about temptation. One, he is quite sure that temptation will come. So you never escape temptation. You may think that something you were tempted to, uh, a lifestyle that you were involved with in the past, that that's completely over, and suddenly, you know, you have a point of weakness, uh, and you know, it, it rears its ugly head again. Um, we could go into uh, behavioral conditioning and learn about our flesh. I talked Sunday about the fact that the flesh, the fallen human nature, and I didn't say this, but it's the same, the animal nature in us um, is subject to the world. It's subject to cause and effect. It's subject to stimulus response. So in psychology, there's a branch of psychology called, called behavioral psychology. And uh, this is used extensively in advertising to shape you, to get you to buy stuff, right? All we do is we take something and we associate it with what is attractive to you, what causes a response, right? And we attach those two things to one another. So the classic example of this, there's several different forms of behavioral conditioning, but the classic example is called classical conditioning. And it was uh, discovered, I guess you could say, by a, uh, a Russian named Pavlov. If you've had an introductory college psychology course, you've heard of Pavlov's dog. And if you have animals, you already will be well aware of this particular attachment. So what Pavlov did was each time he fed his dog, he rung a bell. Ding! Ding! And then he discovered that all he needed to do was ring the bell without the presence of any food, and his dog would salivate. Now, see, that's more than just behavior running toward it. That has become conditioned 
in a part of this animal's brain that is beneath conscious behavior. Does that make sense? This is how we are shaped to buy certain things uh, as well. Um, so we can find ourselves in a situation where we were previously conditioned to do something that we now know is sin that we turned away from, but ding, the bell rings and we turn to it again, right? Now, there, behavioral conditioning gets more sophisticated than what that, that's called classical conditioning, gets more sophisticated than that. When I was going to Baylor, I was taking a class and uh, it was in behavioral conditioning and we trained a rat. Um, I, I had a white rat and uh, I called him Ezekiel, which I feel bad now because we have these wonderful children named Ezekiel, but back then no children were called Ezekiel. So I wouldn't been, have been offensive by calling my rat Ezekiel. I just thought, you know, uh, that, you know, he was like a white-haired prophet, you know, <laughs> so Ezekiel, my rat. And uh, so we put him in this container called a Skinner box. B.F. Skinner is the, the one that really, um, I guess, is most associated with, uh, with uh, behavioral conditioning. And so I won't go into all the detail, but through shaping, we taught the rat to press a bar whenever a light came on so that he could have water. So, you know, it was great, you know, and, and we went through all this process of doing that, but we would turn the light on and he would press the bar and drink, press the bar and drink. You can teach a rat to press a bar and drink, right? So what we find is, and you have found this, is that you can condition certain behaviors or you can root out certain behaviors, right? Um, eliminate certain behaviors. But then in behavioral conditioning, it's called spontaneous recovery. So previously, you know, the rat has been consistently pressing the bar, pressing the bar. But for some reason, maybe there was a period when we were conditioning him when he would stay over in the other side of the Skinner box and not move to the, the bar. And for, you know, for, let's say for whatever reason, that behavior, because all of this is behavior, right? That that behavior returns. The best way for you to understand this, if you've had a pet that you have tried to uh, housebreak, is that you've got this dog or this cat, the cat you've taught to use the cat box, the dog you've taught to use the little pad or you've taught to go outside and they're never to go inside. And perhaps it's been months or even years. And then seemingly randomly, the dog poops on your rug. And you're thinking, what just happened? It's called spontaneous recovery. It's spontaneous recovery of a previous behavior. The behavior was pooping on the rug, right? The behavior by the cat is, you know, if it's a male cat, if you've got a tomcat, you need to get them spayed because they're gonna, we, we just call it spraying. The, cat, the cat's gonna spray everywhere. And that's their way of saying, this is my territory and they're gonna spray all over your house, which is, you know, terrible. But anyway, um, so how am I tying this to the Bible? Here's how I'm tying this to the Bible. Um, temptation arises when there's a certain cue or trigger, right? So let's say for a human being, uh, I don't know, you did coke, right? I don't know anybody in the room, you know, I'm gonna get you to raise your hand. Um, you did coke, however you did it, 
okay? And you overcame that. Now, purportedly, coke and meth and marijuana are not physiologically, well, actually, I'm not sure about meth, but coke and marijuana are not physiologically addictive in the same respect as heroin. But see, that's irrelevant because you develop a behavior pattern that is wrapped around the reward that is attached to that. Now you may think with cocaine or meth or marijuana or alcohol that it's just about the feeling that you get from the drug, but that would be inaccurate. And believe it or not, this ties into Sunday. I didn't get deeply into this on Sunday, but it ties in, okay? Because what I told you Sunday is joy is the reward, right? The joy of the Lord is your strength. Rejoice in the Lord always, the Apostle Paul says. And again, I say rejoice. Joy is the initial reward that is perpetuated in our life until we get to the place where we receive the ultimate reward, which is that existence with God for eternity that we call heaven, right? But initially, we're receiving a reward, and that is the joy that the Lord gives us. And that's why, you know, people really need joy. That's, I, I was proud to preach on that on Sunday. We need that. And the Holy Spirit provides that. Now, from a, a fleshly perspective, right? Back to your, your fallen nature, your animal nature. There's a chemical in the brain that is produced that gives you that sense of reward, that feeling, right? Emotion of reward. And it's called dopamine right? Alcohol creates a dopamine response. Cocaine creates a dopamine response. What you are addicted to when it's, now, as I said, with heroin, your body literally wraps itself around the heroin and a heroin user will go through withdrawals. Their body literally needs that or they get sick, they sweat all the, now it's possible to develop that level of addiction to alcohol as well, right? But all of these things, and this can be anything, this can be relationships, this can be sex, this can be gambling, literally, this can be any of these things. They create a, by the way, by the way, I'm, I'm looking down here for my phone. Um, it has been clearly shown that these devices do the same thing they create a dopamine response. They create a, our sense of reward. Oh, where's my phone? I got, uh, I don't know where my, where's my, uh, uh, oh, there it is. It's my idol. I'm so glad that I have it, right? Social media does this. Video games do this, okay? It creates a dopamine response. That's how we get addicted to things that are technically not physiologically addicted. You need, and this is what I said Sunday, and that's why you need joy. You need a reward. We can't just go through life drudging through it and being bored and, and you know, just trying to make it. Man, you need a reward. And that's what we're always trying to do. That's what we're looking for in all these different things that we do. But some of those things are destructive. Our culture wants to celebrate them. Our culture, you know, the business culture wants you to pursue them and buy them and so forth. And, you know, I mean, look, I don't really watch that many ads anymore because I don't watch television anymore. I don't pay attention to any of that. 
But if you look at any television ad, they're always going to associate. Remember, behavioral conditioning is about associating two things. They're going to associate something that you already want with something they want you to want. So I can remember going back years and years, because I use this as, a, um, as an example, a message, a sermon example, I guess, years ago. Uh, there used to be billboards all along the highway with a young, svelte woman advertising beer, Coors beer. And she has this figure like this, and she's holding this beer. And I'm thinking, honey, if you're drinking a lot of that beer, you ain't gonna look like that. <laughs> but see, they're selling the beer primarily to men and the men have a response to this woman. And so they associate the two, right? So now I associate Coors with that, okay? And I want that, right? Associating toothpaste with perfect teeth and, you know, the Colgate smile, all of these sorts of things. Um, so advertising has been used to do this for a long time. But it, all of these things create a dopamine response, which is the, the, the reward, the... the uh, it's a neurotransmitter, a, a, a chemical that, that is involved in neurotransmission, right, in your nervous system. Um, and so, as I briefly mentioned Sunday, there's a pattern, right? And I, again, I will recommend this book. It's not a Christian book, but it's a book that will teach you a lot about habit. It's called The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. If you want to know why you have some habits that you wish you didn't have, read this book and it will help you, okay? Um, but he presents this model over and over again that's very simple. There is a cue, call it a trigger, and that trigger is associated with a reward if you perform a particular set of activities, all right? So cue, routine, Reward. So here's a good example. Let's say, because food, you know, obviously we need food, right? Um, but food can be a source of reward for people. Boredom can be a cue. You're sitting there, you don't know what to do. You know, you're done with work, you're tired, you know, you're watching some show or something, you're binging something on Netflix, and uh, you're kind of bored and you, you pause. The cue is boredom, right? You need a reward. To alleviate the boredom, you walk to the refrigerator. You open the refrigerator and you take out whatever it is that gives you the reward, okay? You take out, you know, I don't know, I use Coors as a minute ago, you take Coors beer, or you take out a pumpkin pie, right? Or there's cookies sitting on the counter and you go and you, you know, you get those. Cue, boredom, routine, walk to the refrigerator and open it, reward and eat, reward, okay? So what Duhigg says is, you never truly eliminate something that has established itself as a habit. You have to overwrite it. So in other words, remember the 80s? Remember Nancy Reagan, just say no to drugs, right? Um, commendable, certainly. But 
it doesn't stop people from using drugs if you say, just say no. They're addicted. They can't just say no because their will is what is compromised. Just say no doesn't work because they can only have so much willpower before they just fall and give in again. You have to overwrite that with another routine. You've got to create a new behavior that results also in a reward, right? So, you know, uh, in the aforementioned example of, uh, you know, going to the refrigerator, um, if you could, you know, find another routine to alleviate the boredom. Uh, so let's say, you know, you have, uh, you, have uh, you know, several pets and you live on a safe street. You're bored. Hook the leash up go outside and walk, okay? Believe it or not, I, I used to go out, I don't really so much anymore, I used to go out to the Rowlett Creek Nature Park out there and ride my bike, and it was because it just felt so good to be out there in the trees. Believe it, nature is its own reward. Friends, I, you know, I tried to say this to you several months ago. Um, nature is God's first Bible, right? God created the world. Looking up at the stars, smelling the beautiful air, walking through the tree, it's a reward. It will create that in you. And it's a whole lot healthier than a lot of the other things that we go to. You've got to create a new reward. So, um, you know, exercise can be a reward. Now, I know for some of us that's unimaginable, but it is possible because your body uh, creates endorphins when you exercise. And that is also going to give you that sense of reward. And then, you know, the benefits of exercise are their own reward. So what happens is temptation. Temptation is something that it's a cue or a trigger that makes you want to perform a behavior or set of behaviors called a routine so that you can achieve a reward. Listen, God's not opposed to the reward. We've got to get over this idea that God's a big meanie in heaven and he just wants to punish us all the time or he doesn't care and he doesn't want good things for you. No, I know the plans I have for you, says the, the Lord. Plans to give you a hope and a future, not plans to harm you. But we, you know, some of us just have that, that cringing, you know, cowering dog mentality toward God. Oh, no, you know, God's, I just, I need to hurry up and, you know, no, he, but, God designed your body. He designed the universe. We can't just do what we want to do because you can't make it up as you go along. And that's the, that's the nature of our culture, right? I mean, people have gone far, far afield when it concerns just making things up and creating their own story and so forth where we have a lot of disordered relationships, inordinate relationships, right? And bad habits that people have established in their lives. And, you know, God's law is not about limiting you. It's about creating boundaries and giving you direction and focus so that you will know what gives you a genuine reward, a lasting reward. So as I said Sunday about joy, joy is sustainable happiness, right? You can be happy if you give in to temptation, but then you find that there's a letdown afterwards, or perhaps there's a, 
you know, a physiological reaction that is, you know, negative to that. Uh, you know, the aforementioned withdrawals that somebody has when they are addicted to a particular substance. Um, they're fine while they're taking it, but see, you try to maintain this level of feel, right? This, this, I don't know, maintain your buzz, if you will, okay? But it's just, the thing is, the more you use, the more you need. The more you use, the more you need, and the more you compromise yourself physically. So if we would just follow what God has for us, uh, follow God's law, God's standard, God live within God's boundaries, you find that you're able to obtain or attain that sustained happiness, right? And peace, that's possible. But what happens is temptation, after we've established something, temptation is that trigger that wants us to go back. And just like the dog that you taught to go out and use the potty in the yard, who now takes you know his leave on your rug, you go back to some previous behavior. And uh, as I believe it's someone to say 2 Peter 2.22, uh, he says, you're like a dog that goes back to its vomit, like a sow that goes back to the, the, uh, the mud hole, right? Um, kind of a visceral example that actually comes from Proverbs. We go back and then you can find yourself, as Jesus said, you know, he said, uh, you know, a demon is cast out of a person and travels through waterless regions. And then it returns to the person and finds everything uh, swept and cleaned up. And now the demon enters that person and brings seven other demons, and the last state of the person is worse than the first. So you can find yourself having come out of a hole, now in a deeper hole. That's why we need to resist temptation. And that's why we can't presume that just because we've overcome, we could not fall back. Oh, I can't. No, I wouldn't. No, you could. That's why I've got to cling to the Lord all the time. I need to recognize that, yeah, I could fall back into that. And I don't want to fall back into that pattern again. I've got to overwrite that behavior with new godly behavior so that I can obtain the reward that the Lord wants to give me, okay? Um, so this is interesting. The Greek word, Barclay says, which we translate as temptation, has far more the meaning of a test See, this is why God doesn't take it away. Oh, I, I'm telling you, man, for years, you know, I'm a teenager and a 20-something, and I'm dealing with all of the sexual temptations that teens and 20-somethings deal with. You know, I'm just like, Lord, just take this away. Take this away. And it's frustrating because the Lord doesn't take it away. <laughs> it's really, really, it's maddening. But it is the resisting of temptation that causes me to turn to the Lord and be strengthened in my trust, right? And, you know, then the Lord enters in and he gives me the ability, as the scripture says, God is faithful, will not let you be tempted beyond or tested beyond your ability, but will with the temptation provide the way of escape. There's always a way out. And the primary way out is faith. Number one, I have to admit and hold that this is wrong. That's the problem with our culture. 
That's why temptation, you don't hear a lot about temptation because people are not really tempted anymore. They're just following their urges, right? Temptation assumes that you're trying to resist something, that you're trying to stop doing something. But if I just follow every urge that I have, then there's no sense of temptation any longer, right? That's why I just, I don't hear a lot about this anymore. But it's a test. God is testing you. He's testing your faith. And he's not testing you above or beyond what you are able to bear. But he will provide that way of escape. So first, way of escape is faith. And that faith needs to begin by saying, Lord, I agree with your word. I agree with what you say. You say this is wrong. I agree. It's wrong. That's where I've got to start. Right? Now, Lord, I'm going to need you to help me. And this is where, as I said, you overwrite that routine with another routine for the reward. The Lord is going to give you the wisdom that you need and the knowledge that you need to go a different direction. It's not just stand there and say, no, I've got to go a different direction. I can't keep going back to the same haunts. So I used to work in the addiction community. Um, I worked for Psychiatric Institute of Fort Worth back when psychiatric hospitals were everywhere and it was kind of the panacea for every problem. Uh, everybody's insurance covered uh, a psychiatric hospital. And so a lot of times, uh, parents that were having difficulty with their teenagers would just send them to PI Fort Worth, or I worked for Charter Hospital for a while too, and they would just sent them a Charter Hospital. And it wasn't that the, the, the child was quote unquote, you know, mentally unstable or, or crazy, right? Oh, that's a psych hospital. That, that kid must be crazy. No, they just had behavioral issues or they had addiction issues. And in that environment, I remember hearing trained addiction counselors, of which I am not one, but I remember hearing trained addiction counselors tell these young people and adults. Um, I mainly worked on the adolescent unit, but uh, the, the same message is for adults as well, that if you want to overcome this addiction, you have to change playmates, change playgrounds, and change your toys. If you keep playing with the same people on the same playground with the same toys, you're going to be in the same addiction and it's never going to end. So the reality is, if you've got a group of friends that just want to get high all the time and, and you have understood from the word of God that all things are profitable for, for me, right? But not all things are beneficial. All things, excuse me, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. So anything that masters you, even if it's something that's socially acceptable, is not acceptable to the Lord because the Lord is your master. That's what it means to say Jesus is Lord. You're the boss. You're in control. You're in charge. You're the king, right? And I'm not going to let something else have mastery over me. So when I'm in that kind of situation, then I need to turn to the Lord and I need to allow him to exercise his authority in my life. I need to admit that it is wrong. I need to seek wisdom. I need to seek the knowledge that I need to overwrite that routine with another routine and receive the reward 
from the Lord, right? And so I'm not gonna, uh, you know, say that there's just one way out, but faith is, faith is the, let's say faith is the, the access point, right? Yeah, faith is kind of like, I would say, perhaps the exit from the, the highway of addiction and sin, right? I've got to, if I'm going to exit, now, if I'm going to keep from getting back up on the highway, then I'm going to, I'm going to need to take another route, right? I'm going to need to take surface streets somehow. I can't get back up on that. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how else to get there. So I'm just going to get back up on the highway, the broad road to destruction, but I'll get off before I'm destroyed. No, you got to get off. Take the surface streets and go a different direction, right? That's the routine. There's still going to be the trigger. If you're bored, it's a trigger. You know, if somebody annoys you and you're angry, it's a trigger, right? It's a cue. And there's going to be a routine. There's going to be a behavior. There's going to be, you need to stop justifying sin. And when I say you, I mean me. See three fingers here pointing back at me, okay? We just, we, yeah, well, I, I am Irish. I just fight, you know? Now, we, you stop blaming it on your ancestors, right? You know, I, I'm Irish. I just get drunk, okay? I have a lot of Irish in me. That's why I'm picking on the Irish, all right? So if you're Irish, I'm not picking on you. Um, but the reality is we can, you know, we can say these things and basically all we're doing is we're just um, enabling ourselves to go on in this temptation, okay? But the test is there for a reason. It is something designed not to make us fall, but to test us so that we emerge from it stronger than ever. See, the more you overcome, the more you'll be able to overcome. Amen? So I lift weights all the time. Obviously, I don't look like it, but I do. Um, and uh, resistance exercise is really uh, a good example of this. It's a test. The weight is a test. The weight is a test. The weight is a test, right? And it's challenging me. I don't need to put a bar on my neck with 45s out here and squat all the way down. I don't have to do that. I'm doing that because I need that resistance, right? So uh, running is, you know, the same thing. So I can run a little ways, but I've got to push a little further, a little further, a little further each time, okay? Number two, Barclay says, any temptation that comes to us is not unique. Others have endured it and others have come through it. So, you know, I suppose someone could have a tendency to think, well, you know, I, I, there must be something just really wrong with me. I'm weird. Nobody else is like me. This is just something that I seem to want to do, and I don't see anybody else that really wants to do it. Now, that doesn't. this is not necessary. It's just a possibility. But the reality is no temptation has overtaken you. That is not common. It's common. So what you're going to find is that people in your station in life or in your age or in your subculture, right, uh, are probably similarly tempted. Number three, with the temptation, there's always a way of escape. So I gave you my idea about this. The word that Paul uses uh, for escape is vivid. It's the Greek word ekbasis, and it means a way out of a mountain pass. The idea is of an army apparently surrounded 
and then suddenly seeing an escape route to safety. No one need to fall to any temptation, for with the temptation there is the way out, and the way out is not the way of surrender nor of retreat, but the way of conquest in the power of the grace of God. Amen? So that's good stuff, all right? So that's all about temptation. Let's move on to this, uh, this next passage. Got a little bit of time, and I promise that verse is just so important. That's why I spent so much time on it. So uh, don't think I'll spend that much time on every verse. This is verses 14 through 22. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And he's talking about communion here. And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share in the one loaf. That's why we call it communion, by the way. Verse 18, consider the people of Israel. So we're back to Israel as an example again. Do not those who eat the sacrifices, this is talking about the sacrificial system in the temple, which would have still been standing when Paul was writing this. Um, do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar. So what happened, the Levites were the priestly tribe and they didn't have their own territory. They had cities that were scattered around all of the other territories. But the way that the Levites made their living was from the offerings that the people gave. The way that they ate was that they took the, a portion of the, the, the offerings that were given as sacrifices on the altar, and they ate that. So, you know, they, they ate the, the beef, and they ate the, uh, the, the lamb, and they ate the bread. That's how they were fed. So that's what he's saying here. Verse 19. Do I mean then that food sacrifice to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So. After agreeing with the Corinthians that idols are nothing and that eating meat sacrifice to them is not inherently bad, and after warning the Corinthians not to eat meat sacrifice to an idol, if it would in any way be a stumbling block to the conscience of another believer, Paul now addresses his main concern, idolatry. It is the reason, uh, the, the, idolatry is the reason that it is bad to be a stumbling block to begin with. Although idols do not represent real gods, idolatry is a real problem. Moreover, idols are used by demons as a way to steal worship from God. Very interesting that the Apostle Paul would say this because Satan has been trying to set himself up as a god from the very beginning, right? You know, Satan speaks through this serpent in the tree and causes Eve to doubt God. Did God really say, no, 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 no. If you eat the fruit of this tree, it will what? It will make you like God. But see, Eve was already like God. She was made in the image of God, but she was made to want more. Well, Satan wanted God's throne, and that is what the rest of the fallen angels, the demons, want. And so the reality is, when you see these other gods, 
they're just a front for demons, right? Apollo, Zeus. If you read about these Greek and Roman gods, they're terrible. They're terrible, right? They're demons. And, you know, Satan uses idolatry to steal worship from God today. Listen to what Barclay says about this. As we have seen, when sacrifice was offered, part of the meat was given back to the worshiper to hold a feast. At such a feast, it was always held that the God himself was a guest. Hmm. More, it was often held that after the meat had been sacrificed to the after the meat had been sacrificed, the God himself was in it. And that at the banquet, he entered into the very bodies and spirits of those who ate. It's a demon possession. Just as an unbreakable bond was forged between two people, if they ate each other's bread and salt, so a sacrificial meal formed a real communion between the God, little g, and the worshiper. The person who sacrificed was in a real sense a sharer with the altar. That person had a mystic communion with the God. Now, as we've seen and as we will see, the Apostle Paul said, if you're eating as a guest of someone and they've purchased meat from the marketplace that has been sacrificed to an idol, don't ask any questions. If they don't say anything, just eat. Why? Because demons don't possess meat. This, is what, this was their belief. You understand? Okay. The, and, you know, Jesus understood this when he established a communion meal with his people and said, this bread is my body, this cup is my blood. Does it mean it's literally his body? No, it doesn't. Okay, Catholics believe in what is called transubstantiation, that when the priest uh, pronounces uh, the words of ordinance, that that literally becomes the body of Christ. No, it doesn't. It's nonsense. It's bread. But when I eat it and remember the presence of Christ through the Holy Spirit is around me and is around everyone else and it creates communion. It's the same thing here, right? These people eat this meat. It's just meat. That's all it is. But if they eat that meat with an association to an idol, now they're giving invitation with that association for a demon to come into them, a demon to control. You don't want that. You don't want that at all, right? Now, today, that's not our problem. What comes to my mind immediately is entertainment, right? We go to movies with people and we go to someone's house Right? We, you know, I mean, we're into the Christmas season now, but you know, we're in the Halloween season before. Everybody thinks they need to watch these, these gory, horrific Halloween movies. Why? I am going to tell you, you, by creating an atmosphere of fear, are opening yourself up to the devil. You absolutely are. Faith attracts God. Fear attracts the devil. So you enter in with this group of friends and you just do what they do. So, you know, I mean, we used to talk to teenagers. I was a youth minister for a decade. I used to talk to teenagers about peer pressure and, you know, not uh, going where a group of other teens were going to drink and get high and so forth. Um, but, you know, maybe nobody's drinking or getting high, but they're all sitting around somebody's house 
and they're watching something that is, you know, I mean, a lot of movies today are just soft porn, right? I mean, some of them aren't even that soft. It's, I, I'm thankful that entertainment is the way it is now because if something is going on on the screen now, previously I just had to turn it off and walk away. Now I can just, I can just, you know, zoom past that scene. And, you know, so I watched, uh, I watched the entire, what is it, six? This has been years ago now, but I think it was six uh, years of uh, episodes of Breaking Bad. And it's a morality tale from beginning to end. But there's some horrible stuff in there, man. It's like, you know, this little skinny white dude having sex with his girlfriend. I am not interested, Jesse, and you and your little honey bunny. No. So, you know, I can just skip that episode altogether. I can skip past that. I don't want to have anything to do with that. But see, if I'm, you know, if I'm locked in a theater, that's when I do have to just walk out. Because I'm not going to do that. And it's just, I don't know why more people aren't more disturbed by the fact that you're sitting in a movie theater with a bunch of other voyeurs watching two people have sex on the screen. That's just disturbing if you dig down into it, right? Sex, violence, right? Extreme violence. You know, everybody likes the, the John Wick series, okay? I like Keanu Reeves. Great guy. But dude... I just walked out of that last John Wick movie. I don't even think I, was, I watched the second one. I watched bits of the first one. But it's just an excuse for unending violence and really pointless violence. And people love it. They love it. I think they're, they're into making like a fourth movie now, you know? So, yeah, if I haven't picked on something that you like yet, then I'm sure I will at some point. But the reality is... We invite demons to attack us when we open ourselves up to lust, when we open ourselves up to bloodlust, violence, all these sorts of things. Um, and interestingly, what's happening in a theater like that or in somebody's home when we're all sitting around watching that is communion. It's just disturbing and disgusting, honestly. All right? So, um, he uses the Lord's Supper as the example here for us. When we eat the Lord's Supper, we show that we're part of his body, Christ's body. We're all <clears throat> partaking figuratively and ceremonially in his body when we eat and drink. Those who ate the sacrifices offered in the temple were all participants in the same altar. When one of the Corinthians connected the meat that they ate to an idol because it had been part of a sacrifice to that false god, then through such an association, they participated in the worship of that false god, which constitutes the worship of a demon or demons. And interestingly, our word for demon comes from daimon, which means a demigod, a half-god, if you will, right? So consider, I already talked about Eve, consider the temptation that Satan offered Jesus in the wilderness. In the end, Satan just got to his point and said, all these things I will give you if you what? Bow down and worship. Satan's looking for worship. He wants people to worship him. And if he can't get us to do it directly, he'll get us to do it indirectly by offering us all of these other objects of worship, right? Um, and there's a couple of other examples here from, um, let's, let's use this one. Um, so what we're talking about 
is taking this vessel that the Lord has given us and using it to serve an idol, right? Use, taking these hands, taking these feet, taking this mouth and using it to serve an idol. Barclay writes, one of the <clears throat> great statues of Christ is that by the Danish sculptor Bertel Thorvaldsen. After he had carved it, he was offered a commission to carve a statue of Venus, right? The goddess of love, for the Louvre. His answer was, the hand that carved the form of Christ can never carve the form of a heathen goddess. Um, now, I looked at that, this uh, statue of Christ up by Bertel Thorvaldsen. It's called the Christus. And you will recognize it because speaking of idolatry, the Mormons use it as the uh, symbol of their church. They use this statue of Jesus as the symbol of their, it's Jesus standing there like this with a, with a look it up. The Christus by Bertel Thorvaldsen, right? Um, but the idea here is using this gift that you have to serve something or someone other than God. And then <clears throat> um, Barclay looks at the history of England and comes up with an example uh, from uh, Bonnie Prince Charlie. This was uh, one of the, uh, the princes of England that would become king of England. One of European history's most romantic figures at the heart of a tragic tale of loyalty and devotion is Bonnie Prince Charlie. The young pretender led a futile quest to save the very soul of Scotland. Prince Charles Edward Stuart was born on the 31st of December, 1720, to James III of Scotland. Europe became increasingly restless when Emperor Charles VI died in 1740, and tension mounted between Protestant England and Catholic Jacobian Scotland and France. Charles' ambition and desire for military success led him to plan an invasion of England in order to capture the throne for his father from George II. Now this is Bonnie Prince Charlie who wants to invade England in the name of Catholic Jacobian Scotland and become king. After a brief period in France, following a failed attempt to gain support, Prince Charles landed in Scotland on the 25th of July, 1745. He quickly gained support from the Highlands and his army successfully fought General John Cape's men. After the victory at the Battle of Prestonpans, Charles and his army attempted to continue to London. They were forced to retreat back to Scotland after receiving reports of overwhelming armies prepared to defend the city. Charles did not give up completely and continued to lead his men into battles. However, however after the disastrous 40-minute defeat at Culloden Moor, Charles was forced to spend the next five months as a hunted man. Now, why do I give you this background? You're like, I thought we were studying the Bible and we're in English history. Um, first of all, I read a very interesting book by Robert Louis Stevenson, Robert Louis Stevenson called Kidnapped. Uh, you would know Robert Louis, Louis Stevenson from his books, Treasure Island and The Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He wrote both of those. I read both of those and then I saw Kidnapped. Oh, this is interesting. And it's all about this period in Scotland's history when there was this conflict between the Catholics, the Jacobians, 
and the Protestants. And the Jacobians were in the highlands, or excuse me, the, the Jacobians were in the lowlands, uh, and uh, the Protestants were, were in the highlands. I think that, that's accurate. This is what Barclay says when it concerns, because Bonnie Prince, oh, I'm sorry. No, it's the other way around. The, the Protestants were in the highlands, the, which, whichever I said, the Jacobians and the Catholics were in the lowlands, right? Um, when Bonnie Prince Charlie was fleeing for his life, this is this five month period after the defeat at uh, Culloden Moor. When Bonnie Prince Charlie was fleeing for his life, he found refuge with the eight men of Glenmoriston. They were outlaws and criminals, every one. And there was a price of 30,000 pounds on Charlie's head. So these are outlaws. They're criminals. They could have turned Charlie in and gotten 30,000 pounds, which back then been a lot of money. They had no money at all. But for weeks, they hid him and kept him safe. And not one of them betrayed him. The years passed until the rebellion was only an old, unhappy memory. One of the eight men, Hugh Chisholm, found his way to Edinburgh, Scotland. People were interested now in his story of the prince, and they talked to him. He was poor, and sometimes they would give him money. But always, Hugh Chisholm would shake hands with his left hand. He said that when Prince Charlie left, when Prince Charlie left the eight men, he shook hands with them. And Hugh had sworn that he would never again give to anyone the hand he had given to his prince. Don't use the hand that you have sworn to follow Christ to do anything that dishonors him, anything in sin. That's loyalty. We don't have that anymore. We just bounce around from one desire to another. But when I say Jesus is Lord, I'm saying I'm absolutely loyal to him even when I'm tempted to use these hands to do something that they shouldn't do. When I'm tempted to carve that statue of Venus, when I'm tempted to shake the hand of that person that is unworthy, right? No, these hands are for Christ. This mouth is for Christ. These feet are for Christ. And so when I encounter that kind of temptation, I recognize who I am because I know whose I am. Amen? All right.